The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools, an investor seeking promising ag tech startups, or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. As an industry, we've got to get this right. I think whether it's glasshouse, vertical farms, or whatever, we've got to move the agricultural output forwards. And I think we're a very, very big part of that story. I think the staggering number is this story of agriculture using 70% of the Earth's water. And now we're going to increase agriculture by 50%. And you're going, well, that means there's not going to be any Perrier, doesn't it? So we've got to do something about it. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast. Weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 9. Welcome back to the show. If you are a regular listener, I always like rolling out the welcome mat because I appreciate the time you put in to listen to this show week in and week out, season after season, whether you've been here since Episode 1 or you just found it recently and you decided to make your way back here. I truly appreciate it. I don't take your time for granted. And I'm grateful for you sharing the show, listening to the show, and all the comments and all the feedback I get on all the socials and on email. It really warms my heart. So keep doing it because it certainly makes my day. If this is your first time listening, then you're in the right place. If you're looking for a show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran, podcasting since 2014 with my first show, Podcast Junkies, and founder of our full-service podcast agency, Fullcast. In case you missed last week's episode, we had a great conversation with Robin Vincent of Kenobi Technologies. We talked about his navigation of the CEO journey, his love for tech and electronics, Ubuntu wellness and growing nutritious food, conference travel, networking discussions, energy efficiency in farming, loneliness, and the challenges of entrepreneurship. As you might imagine, covering a lot of bases, and that one's been well received. Make sure you check that out if you have not already. This week, we speak to Ralph Weir of Zangdu. Ralph grew up in Scotland and has traversed a really fascinating journey from the world of semiconductors and mobile television all the way to vertical farming. And his story is not just a narrative of his own evolution, but a testament to the power of adaptability and innovation. We talk about his roots, his father's profound influence on his life, and a chance encounter with the world of ag tech, which shaped his incredible journey. Under Ralph's leadership, Zindu is revolutionizing the farming landscape using plasma technology, which is something that was new to me, and I was really interested to deep dive on this. We talk about their trailblazing work and how they're leveraging plasma to enhance crop growth, optimize seeds per specific growing systems, and significantly reduce costs, which is really helpful for transforming vertical farming into an accessible venture for small-scale farmers, which is something that's near and dear to my heart. We talk a little bit about differential pricing and 
what he's called the snooze mode for seasonal planting, which is an interesting concept, and he'll explain that in this episode. Despite the numerous challenges posed by the pandemic and Brexit, Zindu's resilience and commitment to their mission remained unwavering. And we talked about how he was able to navigate the complexities of leadership, all the challenges of tech, and how to future-proof what they're doing in the vertical farming space. It's truly a, an inspiring story of innovation, resilience, and a passion for the environment as well. So I know you'll get a lot out of this. If you enjoy this episode or any past episodes, then please leave me a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I know there's people that are listening to this that hear this week in and week out that have not done it yet. So pause, do that now, ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. And I'd love to read yours out next and give you a shout out. These episodes are going to be chock full of great takeaways as always. And remember, as a listener, I want you to focus all your energy on our conversation. So don't worry about jotting down notes or pulling over the car <laughs> to rewind a piece that you wanted to hear again. Rest assured, you can always visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. You can read the full show notes for each episode, which includes all the guest links as well. Okay, before we jump into this uninterrupted conversation with Ralph, here are a few words from the amazing partners that support this show. This episode is brought to you by Horty Agri Next. November 20th to the 22nd. In this first edition of the conference, you can expect a vibrant show that will bring together a portfolio of high-level horticulture technology to the Emirates, with the goal of aiding the Emirates to take the next step in becoming more self-sufficient in their food production, aligning with their 2051 goals. The show is expecting eight to 10,000 visitors over the three days and will include investors, buyers, curious farmers, government officials, university professors, and association members. Booths are still available and exhibitors are welcome. Partners for the conference include the Abu Dhabi Agriculture and Food Safety Authority, Dutch Greenhouse Delta, and Wageningen University, which will provide a wealth of knowledge and insight. Sessions will include a mix of Emirati and Dutch speakers and will highlight how these different worlds will come together in partnership. Based in Abu Dhabi, the agricultural hub of the UAE, the government's involvement will ensure that companies interested in partnering with the Emirates receive their full support. Co-located with VIVMEA 2023, the premier show in livestock production and animal husbandry, this week will provide a comprehensive look at the entire ag industry supply chain, both vertically and horizontally. Mark your calendars for the CEA Summit East in Danville, Virginia from September 19th to the 20th, 2023. This two-day event, co-hosted by Indoor AgCon and the Virginia Tech IALR Controlled Environment Agriculture Innovation Center, brings businesses and academia together to help you grow your business. Immerse yourself in a full lineup of research showcases, panel discussions, and keynotes featuring top experts, grower operators, and other thought leaders. Explore the latest CEA innovations from tabletop exhibitors. Enjoy quality networking opportunities. Don't miss this unique opportunity to attend a conference at a research facility where you can get a first-hand look at cutting-edge research projects happening right now and explore ideas for collaboration with Virginia Tech and IALR researchers as well. Vertical Farming Podcast listeners can save 10% off the standard passes with code VFP. Visit ceasummit.com for more details and to register. So Ralph Weir, CEO of Zindu, thank you so much for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thank you, Harry. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you so much. Uh, when did you first hear about the show? It was actually through a friend who said, you should be listening to some of these. Um, okay. Yeah, it's probably oh, six months ago. Oh, so okay. It's amazing what you can get with CarPlay in the car on the drive home. It's great. So I should be thanking your friend as well. <laughs> you know Mickey. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And where are you calling in from? 
So, yeah, I'm coming from Loughborough, which is between Nottingham and, and Leicester in the UK. It's, it's okay. in the middle of the sort of the, the industrial heartland of England. Okay. There's a lot of engineering around here, a lot of science. We're actually spin out from the, the university here, which is where the company was originally founded. What, was that where you grew up as well? Oh, no. Okay. No, no, no. I'm from the west coast of Scotland. Oh, okay. It's a very different part of the world. It's a land of fjords and, and mountains. My grandfather had a croft up there, so that is a bit of a connection with the whole farming community, although, of course, a croft with a few sheep and a few crops is very different to what we have today. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, different is, croft, is croft Scottish reform? It's like a very small holding. So the village he had his croft in, there was a small house which was sort of like one bedroom, one other room, and a strip of land that ran up the, the mountain behind. And every mm. one of the houses had this strip of land behind it. So it's, it's a beautiful, old-fashioned way of life, largely gone, I think, overrun by bigger farms. And it has to be, you know, for the scale and you know, just the economies of, of modern farming. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about Scotland. My partner's ex-husband is from there, so she's been there. She said it's absolutely spectacular. The landscape is just amazing. And so every time I hear people talk about, you know, the, the Scottish countryside, you know, <laughs> they come back, you know, or describing it in terms that just really describe something that's idyllic and almost fantasy-like, I think, from the ways they're describing <laughs> it sometimes. <laughs> It is the sort of place where if you get the weather right, it is just phenomenal. It can be very, very beautiful. It is also a lot more rugged than perhaps people imagine. I think one of the things that people in the States don't realize about Europe is how far north a lot of Europe is. You know, so Glasgow and Edinburgh are the two big cities. They're both at 55 degrees north. I think the U.S. I think stops at 48 degrees north. Okay. Yeah. You know, so it's a long way. It's a, it's a, by nature, it's a very different sort of climate. Yeah. Which is quite interesting when you start talking about indoor farming and in, indoor agriculture is yeah. the different perspectives you have. If you're down the, the far south or in the desert or in, in the, the far north, it's a very different set of criteria to what you might have in, in Texas or yeah, yeah. <laughs> most definitely. So did growing up there, that color any of your decisions when you were in university and, and thinking about what to study or, you know, take us back a little bit ways. We don't have to go all the way back with super specifics, but I'm just curious about your mindset. And as we get to present day, what that origin story looks like. Gosh, there's a few things from my grandfather's croft. One of them was one of my cousins who I remember as a young boy, maybe five, six years old, I was describing to my cousin, who much older than me, she's probably 30, what I was describing was the very beautiful patterns you get if you drip oil from an outboard motor on a boat into the water, and you get these beautiful rainbow effects. And yeah. she was absolutely horrified <laughs> and was all about the environment and have you thought about what you're doing to the fish? And I'm like, no, I'm five years old. I'm making pretty patterns. So, <laughs> but that kind of stuck with me. It was the first person I'd ever heard talk about the environment and changing mm. the environment. I think the other thing that was going on back then was my father had been a major in the war in the British Army in bomb disposal. 
And that gave him something of a unique attitude towards management style. He used to say that when you're in a hole, the bomb doesn't count the pips. And I don't know if you know about the pips on a, oh, an officer's... Yeah. Okay. His point was, if you're doing a job, it doesn't yeah. matter if you're a major or the lowest rank, the bomb doesn't care. Yeah, you know, you're sense. a team, do it together. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've tried to live by that. Try not to ask the team to do to do more than I would do myself. But that actually, he had a love of electronics. That rubbed off on me. And I think you've got something of a love of electronic music. I think we've talked about that in the past. I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> My first passion is uh, house music. Growing up as a teenager in New York, I took a, a shine to that and been to many clubs in New York and I still have my turntables and I still play. I played some vinyl this past weekend wow. <laughs> at a friend's comic book store here in town. So it's always something that I try to get in as much as possible. I still make DJ mixes on SoundCloud as well. <laughs> nice. So when I was at school in what the, it would be in the early 80s, I was building analog synthesizers. So, you know, building keyboards, okay. drum synths were my particular challenge. I was trying to build drum synthesizers. Okay. And some friends who were mu proper musicians, as opposed to people tinkering with the electronics, started to talk about digital synthesizers. I was like, how did that work? Digital, that's just numbers. Learned a little bit more about it, and that led me into going into a course in digital signal processing and semiconductors, which is as far away from farming as you can get. You know, So <laughs> yeah. my early career started designing chips for mobile phones. And that was with Motorola, in fact. Motorola, then Texas Instruments, and then into the world of startups in the early 90s. Okay. So when I say the early 90s, I'm starting to feel quite old. That means <laughs> I've been in startups for 31 years. That's amazing. And so what were some of the things that were on top of mind for you? I know as it regards to getting into present day and the work you're doing with Zindu, you mentioned your early influences from family members about thinking about the environment. As you were working in the startup community, what were some of the other influences that were, starting, were beginning to come on your radar to start, a, start to paint and create this, you know, what maybe your existing worldview now? I think most of the early startups I was drawn to because it was cool technology, you know, things like OLED displays, so materials yeah. for OLED displays, semiconductor materials to improve the efficiency of LED lighting mobile television. I would say I've been in some startups that went very well. I would not say that mobile television was one of them. You know, building a TV into your phone seemed like a great idea at one point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some, you've got the external forces, of course, that uh, influence what's going on. But that gave me a great view of how the world works, how the world of startups and investment works. But most of those were things that when I described them to my wife or to my family, they would go, yeah, whatever. They were just cool gadgets that, you know, the kids might like the idea of someday. But I think there's a real difference when you start to talk about what Zindu is doing. Mm -hmm. People just go, oh, I get that. I see what yeah. you're doing. This is fantastic. People yeah. can associate with it much better. And I think that in many ways, that transition from the world of semiconductors came through a series of other startups looking at things like aircraft efficiency and really starting to look at what can we do, not to change the way people have to live, but 
to bring things into line, to make what people need achievable within the bounds of what the world can, can provide. Hmm. And so I was actually introduced to Felipe, the founder of the company, the original founder, by some friends who said, look, this guy's spinning a company out from the university. He needs some help from somebody who knows about startups. Hmm. And every time he opened his mouth, I went, really? Does it do that? <laughs> this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. So, yes. And that really resonated with me, the idea of increasing crop yields and getting rid of chemicals really without changing anything. You know, there's no chemicals involved. There's just a little bit of electricity and a little bit of magic, and we do these amazing things. So it really became one of those ones you just end up going, I've got to get involved in this. So, How much of it was a education process for you, understanding what was happening in the controlled environment agriculture space? And so how much did you need to sort of get up to speed to get a grasp of really what was being created, what you were getting into? I've learned a, a huge amount about controlled environments. I actually live on a farm. I had that connection with the Croft back in the early days. So I knew a fair bit. I knew more than the average man on the street, put it that okay. way. I had also had quite a lot of exposure to things like LED lighting and understanding some of the applications of that, particularly I was in places like Taiwan and Korea okay. uh, with some of their farms. So I've learned a lot, but I think I was already in a place where I was familiar with the concepts and very receptive. To be honest, though, in the very early days, we were not creating something for controlled environment, for indoor yeah. growing. We were working and still are working with the very big seed producers and saying, if we can make this available globally for every seed, we've got something which is, you know, is, is very significant. What we've discovered since, of course, is that this business of the controlled environment, whether it's the vertical farms or the glass houses, you get so much benefit from reducing the pathogens because pathogens can only get into a farm in four ways, into a vertical farm at least. They can come in on the people, on the water, on the growing media, or on the seeds. That's your four options. Okay. So water you can sterilize, that's not a problem. Growing media, again, can be sterilized. People, you probably best not sterilize them, but you can probably wrap them up in. <laughs> I always think about those, every time you watch those space movies, they, they go through that chamber that sort of showers them with all sorts of air or, or chemicals or something that, to sterilize them. And I wonder, I imagine a lot of that is happening on site or some of these locations as well. It is really interesting. The first vertical farms I saw, people were just wandering around, maybe with a lab coat or something. And you look at it now and it's much more, to me, coming out of the semiconductor industry, you're sort of going, you're getting into the bunny suits and so forth that people are wearing yeah. in, in clean rooms. Yeah. Um, some of the big farms are just saying, you are not getting into our growing rooms. It's just not happening. We've got some nice windows you can look in, but that's it. And some of those guys are, you know, they're working up at the 25,000 meter level and beyond. You know, these things are getting to be really huge. So, Yeah, I think it's one of those things that people may know, obviously, in the industry, but people that are new to the industry may not think. And the fact that you can bring in contaminants through those four channels, I think it's, it may be news to some folks listening as well. And I think it's important to understand because one of the selling points when people talk about CEA, indoor farming, 
and the benefits of it, you know, obviously in the beginning, a lot of it is touting the, the lack of pesticides, the, the lack of need for controlling any bugs or contaminants. And I think, especially you coming from the semiconductor industry and this idea of clean rooms, I think it's really understanding and educating the audience to the sort of the extent as to what's possible from a contaminant perspective in terms of like different sizes, bugs. And, and I'm wondering, you know, based on your experience, you know, how much of that do you feel is an education process for some people that may not be aware of what's possible when it comes to contaminating these rooms? I think it's huge. I have seen several, I've been working with vertical farms for four years and just watching some of the protocols, the SOPs changing and what people are doing. It's certainly been a wake up for me. I remember my first trip around a seed factory, a seed plant, and being asked, you know, don't touch the seeds. And that was about the limit of it in, you know, for, yeah. for open field farming. Yeah. And I think if you come from open field into a vertical farm, you probably don't have that same mindset that comes out of the, I don't know, the medical industry or the semiconductor business of keeping it absolutely clean. So this is, for us, one of the things that we're bringing to that area is that ability to clean the seeds before they go in, block off that fourth the fourth pathogen vector. And that gets really interesting because, of course, really you want zero-wash salads. That's the big ambition. (laughs) And if somebody, I don't know, they've got a cold and they've got some pathogens and somehow it gets in the seeds, before you know it, you've got listeria or salmonella or E. coli or whatever. It's on the seeds. It's inevitably going to rattle through the farm and out on the salad. And if we can just stop that getting in there, then... And yes, huge progress. We talked a little bit about the origins of the name. If you want to just go through that story, because I think it's contextually helpful for folks to understand, you know, the the mission behind what you're doing at Mm. Zindu. So I I mentioned that our founder, the university professor behind the technology is Felipe Isa Perez. And he is from the the Basque part of Spain. So the Basque region in the, the north of Spain has its own dialect. And... When we were naming the company, Felipe came up with this word, Zindu, and it's based on one of the the Basque words, which just means to care for. And we all went, actually, that is exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to care for the environment. We're trying to do all this good stuff, taking away the chemicals, improving outcomes for growing. And it probably goes beyond that with the ultimate vision for the company in terms of the, the other approaches, the other things that we can do with this, which extend on elsewhere into into plasma for agriculture. But it's all about caring for the environment, for the plants that we're growing, for the crops. And that's kind of the ethos that we try and bring into into the business. What was different about this initiative, Ralph, when you think about all the startups you worked on and, and all the companies you've worked for and led in the past and you know what was it about Zindu and and Felipe's mission that attracted you and made you feel like this is something where that you wanted to begin dedicating a, a, a quite a bit of your time to I think uh, well when I first met Felipe I pretty quickly I made up my mind about it but what cemented it was going home and talking to my wife about it and her just going you've got to do that one uh, when you start to look at what Felipe thought we could do, and in that context of, I suppose as a family, we've always been 
you know, the people who've been pushing to get recycling into our street and all of this kind of thing. You know, we've always been at that sort of that sort of end of trying to care for the environment as much as we can, being very aware of of the constraints that the, the planet has. And when I described this to Jane, she just went, "This is exactly what you should be doing." You know, this is one that it doesn't matter which of our friends you explain it to. There are some who, in the past, you're talking about stuff for mobile phones or for planes or whatever. Go, oh, well, you know, oh, you shouldn't be flying anywhere. Just another gadget. We've never had that from anybody when we talk about about Zindu. It's just everybody goes, yeah, I get it. And I think for me, I think there was something of a meeting of minds with with Felipe because I knew a little bit about farming. I knew a little bit about the electronics. I knew a little bit about biology and chemistry. Just some people say CEOs need to know enough to be dangerous. And I think I was probably in that category. <laughs> you know, it's that chemistry of the people as well as of the idea. And so I, I think that was a big part. And I think that's helped us as we've built the team out as well. So we ended up building out a, a fantastic team. I think it's quite interesting when you look at a team and just the way they react, you know, when because if you're a small company, you quite often are in a situation where there is one guy who's responsible for a whole area, and you can just see when somebody's under pressure, other people will be making them cups of tea and coffee, going, "Can I get that for you? Can I help? Can I do this? Can yeah. I do that?" And or even you know, if if it's areas where there is cross-skilling, people stepping in and going, "Let me do that." So, and, you know, it's not a nine to five mentality. It's, we're trying to do something here. We're trying to do something amazing. So if the work's done at half past four, people will be disappearing. On the other hand, if the work's not done at half past five or half past six or half past nine, people are not disappearing. People are getting on. And, you know, I really like that. It's a very fine balance between putting pressure on people to deliver against a milestone or a deadline or whatever. And are we creating an environment where they feel that they're under pressure, even though you don't think you're putting them under pressure? I like to think that it's because they love what they're doing. They see where we're going. You know, I think it's... Yeah, I think that's a testament to the quality of leadership as well, because when you see companies that do it well and do it successfully, it's this really fine balance of ensuring that everyone is bought into the mission. And probably that's something that needs to happen it's easier if you're hiring the person, probably a bit more challenging if you're stepping into an organization where there's already people there and they've had a previous leadership and you've got to now convince them that this is the new way of doing things. But I think feeling that we're that everyone's moving towards the same mission, the same goal for the same reason, I think helps to get keep people bought in. And, and during those times and those stretches when things can get tough or nights or afternoons can get long, I think feeling like they're not being put out or being asked to go above and beyond for no reason. I think everyone's bought in and, and I think it helps with the culture there. Is this leadership style something that you've learned over the years or it's, it's something that someone has inspired, you know, previous you know bosses have inspired you to adopt? I think it's probably a little bit of many things. I mentioned my father and his view of Bob's attitudes to rank and also an upbringing within Motorola and Texas Instruments, who are fantastic training grounds. I mean, people in semiconductors used to joke that Texas Instruments or TI, TI stands for Training Institute, because <laughs> they were fantastic. You 
were put on so many courses, management style, commercial courses. They really invested in their people back in those days. And I can't speak for what it's like now, but they really helped a lot. I think there are several bosses along the way, some who would completely fail today's politically correctness tests, uh, but yeah, some real characters that you just learn so much from. And yeah, one character in particular I'm thinking of who's sadly no longer with us, but he was just brilliant at knowing when to push, what to say, what offensive thing to say that people would probably (laughs) just about forgive him for, but which absolutely made him the center of attention so he could make whatever point he wanted to make. And he was absolutely brilliant. So yes, I've been very lucky with the the people I've been able to learn from. And and then also very lucky in the people that I've had working for me, in that sometimes you see what they're doing with their teams and go, that works. Talk a little bit about managing the company through trying times. I see that the company started in 2019, so naturally you had to make it through what the whole world experienced in terms of of COVID. And this is that's when our show started in March of 2020. So I'm curious how what was the the challenges you were experiencing as a leader, how you managed through that to present day? Yeah, COVID was a real difficult time. I mean, initially there was the whole shock of the world is just ending. And I think the first thing that we did was gather our family around and try to make sure that the rest of the team had done the same. Of course, we were a very small team at that point, only three or four people, in fact, four, including Felipe. And so we gathered the family around and then went, well, actually, we can continue working as as a team. We've got all these fancy remote tools you know, with Teams and Zoom and so forth, we can do this. And so even with the, well, it wasn't just social distancing, was it? It was quarantine where you sort of locked in your house. We were able to, we got a machine back actually into Felipe's garage. He was able to be running it, developing things, passing stuff out to one of the guys working in software. I was ending up doing things on algorithms and so forth. It was, in a way, we were, on teams continuously. And I think that was very important to be giving each other support and a continuous interaction with other humans. So that worked pretty well. And then, of course, at the first point that the quarantine was relaxed, we had to talk about how we would continue to work with social distancing. At that point, the company was based in the university's innovation center. And we'd started in one unit, and then we needed a second unit. And these were very small offices. Yeah. And then we needed a third one. And there were three employees. And <laughs> so the university said, well, if we're going to let you back in the building, how are you going to handle social distancing? And we went, he's in that unit. I'm in that one. We'll shut the door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yes, we started to get back in that way. We did make a lot of progress, we would have made a lot more progress just at the stage that we were at. A lot of relationships that we had were with companies in the Netherlands. We couldn't ship things in or out. We couldn't get access to things. And obviously, things like the biology lab. It's a class two biology lab. We need that for testing things like pathogens and seeds, testing germination rates and so forth. We couldn't get access to that. 
but we could get access to the basic physics of what the machine was doing and and evolved it a lot through that period. A lot of the sensors and control, I mean, they've evolved further since then, but a lot of the, the first prototypes were put together through that phase. So we achieved a lot, but it really caused a lot of issues for us. Having said that, we then had to cope with Brexit, so that's all part of the fun and games. <laughs> all the different things that come your way as a leader, obstacles, and I think it's a testament to making you stronger, the fact that you can get through those, the fact that you can survive. And I think a lot of companies realized, you know, there was limits to what you thought you could do pre-Brexit, pre-COVID, and then I think the companies that survived and came out stronger as a result of figuring out ways to work through these situations ended up being more resilient. And I think it's made them all stronger as a company. And I'm sure mm. that you would relate to that as well. Yes. You hear some amazing stories from a lot of the people you've had in your, on your shows about how the companies have come out and done amazing things. I think one of the things that is very different is that people are much more relaxed. I think uh, if you look at dress codes have become yeah. more relaxed. can't yeah. remember the last time I wore a tie and getting calls from HMRC. So HMRC is the UK tax office, so it's the IRS. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And chatting to a lady at HMRC and she said, oh, I'm terribly sorry, that's my baby crying in the background. <laughs> that would not have happened pre-COVID. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's normal now. Yeah, it's yeah. normal, yes. Yeah. And I think it's great too, especially coming from a podcast perspective. With my first show, Podcast Junkies, which I've, I've started since 2014, 300 interviews. I mean, I've had everything from a cat or a dog jumping into the, the guest's lap, doors opening, delivery trucks arriving, doors knocked on, doorbells going off. And I leave it all in because it's, it's a podcast where we talk to other podcasters. And it's nice to see warts and all, you know, no one's really, everyone's aiming for NPR status or BBC status, but I think you know, they know that really, really realistically it's not happening. But I think it also endears us all and makes us all like closer to each other. We, and I think we all realize, hey, we're all doing the best we can given our circumstances. And I think, you know, I think when we let some of those cracks come through, I think it helps us all connect to each other on a more human level, which I really love. So for the benefit of people who are not familiar with exactly what Zindu does, I know there's been words thrown around in some of the press releases and some of the talks that you've been giving about plasma technology, which sounds really fancy. But I think for the benefits of this audience, if you could give an overview of what you're currently working on and, and who an ideal customer would be and then some of the current projects you're working on. Sure. So going back to the founding of the company, what Felipe was describing to me was using plasma to create an environment around seeds which would have a big effect on the seed's health. What the plasma is actually doing, what we're proving in so many of the farms now is something like a 20% uplift in crop yield on things like leafy greens. It's very easy to quantify on things like microgreens, um, leafy greens and so forth because it's a fairly quick crop cycle and you see results quickly. So what we're doing is using a little bit of electricity to create plasma in air, or actually convert the air into a plasma. And maybe explaining what plasma is, not a bad place to start. So there's, matter has four states. At school, most of us were taught about three of them. There's solid. So if you imagine, let's start with a block of ice. The block of ice is solid. It 
does not behave like water. And you can see this. If you put a block of ice into a microwave, it doesn't melt. And the reason it doesn't melt is because a microwave works by moving the molecules around. And the block of ice, the molecules are locked solid. They're not going to move. So somehow you're going to put some energy into that ice and it turns into water. And now the microwave does have an effect on it. You put more energy into it. It turns into steam. It's a gas now. Yeah. You put even more energy into it and it turns into a plasma. So plasma is this fourth state of matter. It's a high energy state. And instead of having these very solid bonds that the ice had, they became looser with the water, looser again with the gas, and we actually start to split up the, the molecules so they become separate ions. And at that point, a lot of interesting things happen. So things like atomic oxygen and atomic nitrogen in this mix in the, the plasma. So we're not creating any chemicals. We're just rearranging the molecules in the air. Okay. The air, we talked then about activated air. The seeds are in this activated air. It creates fissures in the coating of the seed. So this allows moisture in, which helps the seed to, to germinate quicker. It actually mm. makes the seed germinate more consistently. So the growers will talk about synchronizing a crop. Synchronizing a crop is a strange thing. If you're a home grower, it's your worst nightmare. You do not want every lettuce you ever planted to be ready for picking on Wednesday. You'd be yeah. quite happy if one was Tuesday, one was Thursday, and one was sometime next week. Yeah. But for a commercial grower, synchronizing is a very important factor. And we get that through creating these microfissures. At the same time, we're creating microfissures in any pathogens that might be in there. And you can imagine a microfissure that a seed goes, well, that's helpful, goes right through a bacteria or a fungal spore, for example. So you get a massive reduction in the pathogen load on the seed. So you now have a seed which has much lower pathogen load on it. It has microfissures which help it germinate more quickly. The waxy coat on a lot of the seeds is either thinned or removed. And the final thing that we do is we fine-tune a hormonal response in the seed which helps it throw off its conservative nature. It's, <laughs> instead of going, oh, no, you know, I should hold myself back just in case there's a bit of a drought or whatever, yeah. it's going into an indoor farm. There is yeah, not yeah. going to be another drought. So you can use the hormones to adapt the way the seed is going to perform. What we try and do is throw them to tweak the hormones so it throws a bigger, better root system very early. And of course, bigger, better root system means bigger, better seedling, which drives yeah. this huge increase in the seedling growth. So you get a seedling which germinated perhaps two or three days quicker than it would have done before, and which then grows 20% faster. And so that is, as you can imagine, proving very exciting. In some ways, I wish it was less than 20% because all you get is, well, you usually get an expletive from a farmer when you tell them about <laughs> it. And then it's show me. So, of course, what yeah, we're looking course. for is the guys who, we get these things out on a sort of a try-before-you-buy trial, put them into a vertical farm or a, a glass house or whatever. And that side of things is going along really nicely. It's, it does take some convincing to get people across the line initially because it looks like snake oil. A lot of people are talking about the confidentiality, this secrecy that goes on in the indoor farming community. And yeah. it's a real pain, it's a real aggravation for me because 
the big guys just don't want to talk about it. They're going, look, this is an unfair advantage. Why do we tell anybody else about it? Yeah. So we're starting to get a few out that are opening up a little bit. But generally, the proof points that we have end up being some of the big public organizations, people like NIAB in the UK. NIAB yeah. is the National Institute for Agriculture and Botany. So they've run okay. a bunch of trials. So seeing basil at plus 30%, wow. they were pretty chuffed with that, pretty pleased. So yeah, it's that's what we do. We make better plants. <laughs> <laughs> do you find that it's applicable for certain seeds, for certain crops, for certain size farms? Is there a sweet spot or is it one of these things that, you know, with enough time and enough proper environment set up, it's almost anyone can benefit from it? We have vanilla protocols on the machines. And so generally, when we come across a new plant variety, the team have enough experience to look at the seed and go, try that. And I think almost without exception, their first attempt will give good results. And we've done that on over 90 varieties now, so it's, it's pretty well proven. What we then do is some fine-tuning, and the fine-tuning okay. gets to be really interesting because we fine-tune for the crop, but also for the growing system because there is a huge difference between the sorts of parameters that are important in aquaponics, hydroponics, aeroponics, yeah. Yeah. fogponics I was hearing about, yeah, Alberto Aguilar from Plantiform. Shout mm. out to him, yes. That was my drive home yesterday. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we optimize the seeds to that. The machines themselves are actually cloud-connected, so we can okay. work with a grower to optimize. But yet, it is applicable to pretty much any seed. We, okay. For example, the vast majority of what we do with vertical farms is leafy greens of some description, herbs. Yeah. Saying that, we have a series of vertical farms who are working with us on trees, where with some of the tree varieties, we've taken the germination rate from, I think it was somewhere in the 20% range, 20 to 30%, taking it up to 80 to 90%, wow. which is significant. Yes. And yeah, I'm sure there are things out there that we can't do, but we haven't found them yet. And is it applicable at specifically at the seed level in terms of the production cycle or is it there other aspects of it where the plasmic technology can be applied post seed sprouting seedlings anywhere along that process the systems that we're building are all about the seed health there are various other companies who are looking at things like plasma activated water which is great as disinfectant and also for fertigation so that's an interesting area as well the difference there is that we've focused completely on seeds and developing the protocols and so forth to have that speciality in that sector. Seeds, actually there is huge value in having a dry treatment for seeds mm. because you want to go straight into an automatic seeding machine. And mm. wet seeds don't work in seeding machines. Some seeds, like basil, if you get them wet, that's the end of the game anyway. They just turn okay. into a biscuit. So yeah, it's, so the plasma can be applied in many areas, we actually have quite a series of longer-term plans for other areas we can bring plasma into agriculture. It's just a case of, at the moment, focus on one thing and do it right. And I think that's yeah. one of the lessons I've had from startups, is the number one thing you have to do in a startup is focus. 
There's so many exciting things you can do, but just focus <laughs> and do one right. Yeah, shiny object syndrome is yeah. definitely something that a lot of founders deal with on a regular basis. I'm curious, I saw that you're speaking at the Indoor Ag Tech NYC. Is there a talk uh, scheduled as well? or Not. Um, okay. We've had a small family crisis, and so okay. I'm not speaking it in New York. However, Alberto Campanaro, Dr. Campanaro, who is our head of plant science, is taking that slot. Okay. And he will be absolutely brilliant. He is a passionate Italian. He will wave <laughs> his arms around a lot. He really knows his stuff on the plant science. So, yeah. you know, if you had me, you'd have one perspective. I'd talk more about the plasma physics. If you get him, you get a lot more on the plants. So it should be good. I'm just sorry yeah. I'm missing out. Are you going? Yeah. Yeah, I'm headed there. This recording will, will likely come out after the conference, but it, it's Wednesday. It's actually June 27th, 2023. So I'm leaving tomorrow morning, heading on a flight to New York, which is my hometown. So I'm excited to get back there for a couple of days. I'll be there through the weekend and to see my parents as well, who live on just north of the city as well. So, But I'll make sure to look out for anyone who's there from the company and chatting up. The, the two days, I'm sure, will go fast and I'll have a recap in a future podcast episode of everything. I learned in all the new CEOs and founders I've met, who I'm sure <laughs> I'll have a new list. <laughs> this tends to happen at these conferences. So, Ralph, I also want to ask a, a question that's common. And as a regular listener, you might know what's coming. But what is a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think the toughest question that I've been struggling with relates to the pricing model for what we're doing. Now, it might sound very money orientated but actually what we're doing at the moment is a flat rate subscription effectively for the machines and the bigger machines the bigger the subscription but there's a lot of the farms where if it's a big farm they're getting an amazing deal if it's a mid-sized farm it's probably about right and then the small guys you know the guys who are in containers doesn't doesn't make sense at this stage and that's something that i'm slightly struggling with is how we move that one forwards. It's just really, and I think the answer lies with the cloud connection of being able to do a sort of a paper use type of thing, trying to get it to a point where it becomes more accessible. I think to do that, we have to drive some of the costs out of the the machine. You can imagine these first machines are probably over-engineered. We can probably get a bunch of the cost out and bring it down. But at this point, for the container farms, the things that we've been suggesting to people are, you know, there's a few farms in an area, let's set up some sort of cooperative or collaborate with a cooperative to get something in there. It's interesting in that the AGCHEM <laughs> market use differential pricing. So if you apply some chemicals to wheat, you get it for some pennies per litre. If you apply okay. that same chemical to tomatoes, it is many orders of magnitude more expensive. Interesting. So there is a sort of a, a parallel model, perhaps, of going, yes, if you're using a machine like that, then you pay a little bit more or a little bit less. Maybe we can have a snooze mode for the guys who have seasonal planting. And, <laughs> you know, sort of, so I think that's been one of my thorniest things that I'm wrestling with at the moment. Yeah, it seems like it's something that it wouldn't be a one-size-fits-all, and especially for some of these smaller farms, one shipping container farms, folks just getting started, dipping their toe in the water. 
you know, it'd be nice to see if that they could benefit from a technology like this, which I think, you know, in the past might have been something that would be cost prohibitive for them. And I think to, to see those those improvements in growth time and yields, I think anyone who's in this space is obviously looking to, you know, if we can, a couple of days could mean a, a big deal <laughs> for some of these smaller farms, especially shaving off the time from those cycles. Some of the, oh, I keep calling them micro herbs, but the microgreens, you know, where yeah. they're, they're only growing for 10 days. If you can shorten yeah. that cycle by oh, two yeah. days, forget yeah. about how big the plant's <laughs> grown, you know, that's phenomenal. So, yeah, it's, for me, it's a real big thing. I want to be able to make a difference. And I think a lot of your guests have talked about, you know, food deserts, local food supply and so forth. Well, if we're working for, with the really big guys, which we are at the moment, that's great. But it's not going to address some of those very local suppliers. We'll have to do a little bit on the, the price of the machine, the accessibility model. Yeah. And I think we've got the tools there to do it. It's just, it's something that we will layer on as we build the product range and the, and the company. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, as you know, I leave some time at the end of these conversations for any thoughts you have for your peers and your colleagues in the industry. And I think it helps it to keep a dialogue going and it helps to just have my guests talk about what's on their mind in a way that, you know, they, they feel like they can share it in some sort of community forum or, you know, whatever space we're creating here. But I've been glad to have the giving my guests this opportunity you never we've been hearing some interesting thoughts and i'm just curious about you know what your thoughts are as we get ready to head into this conference and i'll be connecting to a, a lot of your peers and colleagues in the space any thoughts that you have yeah i think at the moment there's a huge herd mentality that's going on in the vertical farming space there's been something of an assumption of one size fits all that just because one farm isn't going well, that's the end of the, the vertical farming technology. I think what people have to do is, oh, it's actually interesting. That throws me back to semiconductor days. So I shared a flight back from, oh, I'm going to have to say California because I can't remember if it was the top end or the bottom <laughs> end. But I was with Jamie Urquhart, who is one of the founders of ARM. Arm, the microprocessor company, which is in your okay. mobile phone and car and everything else on the planet. Yeah. So Jamie's an interesting character, and he had just joined a venture capital fund. Um, and I was teasing him a little bit, and he said, you know what, actually, before I joined a venture capital fund, I thought I'd be different. I thought I'd go in there. I thought I'd be the voice of reason. And now I realize I'm buying along with the rest of them. It's just one of a sheep in the herd. <laughs> Yeah. And I think there's a danger of that that's going on. I think we all look at the news flow and we assume that it's, you know, horrific. And yet when yeah. you actually talk to people out there, that's not really what's going on. It's what's in the news. And if you just look at what's in the news, you wouldn't go out for fear of being stabbed or shot or whatever. You'd that's stay true. at home. Yeah. <laughs> I think people have to... Stop looking at things. Do you know this is a horrible thing to say to an American? Oh, you're not an American really originally, are you? <laughs> no, I wasn't born here, but yeah, I, now I, I would consider myself an American, yes. Yeah, okay. So one of the things that struck me about the States is this fascinating fact came out just recently that a couple of years back, there was a survey done that says 85% of Americans believe that America is the best country in the world. And I think that that's great. 
<laughs> the next statistic that came out was 40% of Americans have a passport. And you go, <laughs> 45% of Americans think it's the best country in the world. They've never been to any other country. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think there's a little bit of that going on in the intergrowing market of people just listening to what people are saying, getting yeah. brainwashed. I'm not saying that America isn't the greatest country. I'm just saying that, you know, we should all be making decisions based on what facts we can get our hands on, not what perceptions that we have, because the world is different. And you see the stories of the guys up in Finland who are making, the, I don't know if I can say, Luskarta. Those guys are doing great with lettuce. People say it's not possible to grow lettuce in a vertical farm and make money. Well, yes, yeah. it is. And, of course, in, in the Middle East also. You know, I think it's, it's important to, to draw on that. I think another aspect is thinking about what really is the difference between a greenhouse and a vertical farm. You hear a lot of people talking about, you know, all this money that's been thrown into vertical farming and if only greenhouses had access to it or the glasshouse mm -hmm. industry. Yeah. But actually, if they're developing LEDs and HVAC and so forth, all of these things are just as applicable. So it's, it's a rising tide that lifts all boats. And, you know, there's the real sort of hybrid model there as well. So Yeah, it's definitely great to see more of the greenhouse manufacturers who've had such a head start. And they, they talk about how much production comes out of a country as small as Holland, <laughs> you know, in terms of like the greenhouse production and all the technology and all the experience they've had, decades of innovation happening. And to see that coming into the vertical farming space, to see the, where there's hybrid models that are being applied, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think people, there's always opportunities to learn from other in industries that have had, had a leg up and been doing this for a while. So I think to your point, it's helpful to see everyone taking a breather and also seeing that there's a lot to learn from each other. And, and there's no one company that has it all figured out. And I think this idea of, you know, not knocking a system until you've had the opportunity to try it or try it in your environment. And it may not work for your environment, may not work for your farm, but that doesn't mean it's not a technology that could be suitable for other environments. And I think it's just having this open approach to a guest, uh, everyone's consistently saying the same thing. You know, it's still early days within specifically vertical farming. And I think it, it's helpful for us to have, you know, an open attitude towards, you know, working together and seeing how the things that are that we're coming across the companies, the new technologies can be applicable and beneficial for everyone. So I'm glad you, that's, you're echoing things that have been said on this as, show as well. So I appreciate that. Yes. So if, any closing thoughts as you think about the future and then where you're headed? Just that we are heading into some very exciting times. I think yeah. we have, as an industry, we've got to get this right. I think whether it's glasshouse, vertical farms, or whatever, we've got to move the agricultural output forwards. And I think we're a very, very big part of that story. I think the staggering number is the story of agriculture using 70% of the Earth's water. And now we're going to increase agriculture by 50%. And you're going... Well, that means there's not going to be any Perrier, doesn't it? <laughs> the math on that does not work out. Yeah. No. So we've got to do something about it. And I think you're very much in the center of that with this podcast, yeah. with this show, helping pull together, the, pull together the community. I think that's fantastic. And yeah, so I think you were in the right place at the right time as well. <laughs> Well, thanks again to Mickey for connecting us and also just helping me discover all these new companies, all these new 
founders and CEOs with these amazing stories. And I think all these I'm learning with every episode, with every conversation. And I know my listeners are just getting just as excited at the potential for what's happening. So again, we keep saying it and on repeat, but it's still early days. And there's so many exciting opportunities that are happening in this space. And I'm grateful to you for sharing your story, your inspiring origin story as well, because of all the different ways to come into this space. You know, there's no one way. And I think people continue to get inspired on all the different paths that people are taking to contribute to what we're all working towards. So thanks again for coming on and sharing your story. It's been an absolute pleasure, Harry. Thank you for the opportunity. And so Zaindu, Z-A-Y-N-D-U.com. Anywhere else you want to send folks to connect with you? I think that would be the main one. The best place to get us. Yeah, we'll make sure all the links are in the show notes as well. Thanks for your time, Ralph. Thank you, Harry. Thanks again for listening. As always, eternally grateful to my guests for spending that precious hour of time with me and sharing their story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There you'll find summaries, key takeaways, and resources mentioned, and also a back catalog of all our past episodes. Special thanks to our title sponsor, AgTech Marketing Team. If you or your team have been struggling to come up with a comprehensive social media marketing plan and don't know where to begin, reach out to them today. With expertise in strategy, paid media, community management, content generation, influencer, and email marketing, their team can have you up and running in a fraction of the time it would take you to hire a full team and at a fraction of the cost. Learn more at agtechmarketingteam.com. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. To learn about the five key pillars of a successful podcast that every business owner needs to know prior to launching, visit fullcast.co and watch the free video. As a reminder, if you've enjoyed this episode or past episodes, do me a favor, leave me a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. Nothing makes me happier than to read those out on future episodes. And don't forget to tune in next week for a conversation with yet another fascinating leader from the world of vertical farming. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.